Now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Maureen Medill. You hear Maureen broadcasting PGA events for SiriusXM's PGA Tour channel, and I believe she does it better than anybody in the business. She's from Northern Ireland, but became one of the first two female golfers to come over to the States to play college golf on a golf scholarship. She attended Lamar University in Texas and helped the Lady Cardinals win the Texas AIAW State Championship in 1977 and 1978. And in 2007, she was inducted into the Cardinals Hall of Honor. She won the British Ladies Amateur Championship in 1979 and the British Ladies Amateur Stroke Play Championship in 1980. She represented Britain and Ireland in the Curtis Cup in 1980 and later helped coach the team in 1998 and 2004. She turned pro in 1986 and played on the Ladies' European Tour until 1996, recording a couple of runner-up finishes at the 1989 Walmart Match Play Championship and the 1990 Hannigan Open. She's as talented as they come, folks, and I'm very delighted to have her back with me today on Next on the Tee. Hey, good afternoon, Maureen. How are you? I'm very well, Chris. How are you? I'm fantastic, thank you. Good to hear your voice. Same. So I appreciate uh, you giving up some time on your Saturday afternoon to come back and uh, record an interview with me. Happy belated birthday, by the way, from February 1st. I I, I saw on your site, it looked like a very good one, uh, you and your husband taking a little trip up north. What was that like? Oh, well, that was super. I mean, we do these mad things like go away in January and February, away up to the sort of the wilds of Scotland. And um, we decided we'd go up there and do a a good bit of walking. So you just fire all the the bad weather gear into the car and away you go. And uh, it's great because we have a strategy. We find on the Internet a, a place that we think we'd like to go to. We find an extremely good pub. We get in touch with the pub. We make sure they're open in January or February when we're going to be there. And then we look for a cottage. So we've got our priorities right. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw you, you stumbled upon a, uh, a little nine-hole golf course with Garlock Golf oh, Club and the Honesty yes. Box I love. Yes, yes. And, you know, uh, it's really interesting because from writing that article, so many people got in touch with other recommendations and in fact there are far more I've, I've played golf um, at places with honesty boxes in Ireland Scotland and Wales never in England and I was inundated with suggestions and places to go and what not so I mean it, it's just it's just delightful it's like stepping back in time Chris you know um, it's a long way from the um manicured resort courses and uh, endless four-ball tea times. You know, I just love it. I love it. And you could go with half a dozen clubs, and it's perfect. What was Gerlach like? What was Gerlach Golf Club like? Well, Gerlach is, is, is a lovely little place. I mean, you know, if you like it in January or February, you're going to love it at any other time of year because it doesn't get a lot of protection from the elements. And we've had a lot of very bad storms here. And when we have particularly bad Storms, they all get names. Now we've got one this weekend, but it's not ferocious enough to merit a name. And so when we were up there, there was first of all storm, storm Kiara, and then so you get a storm and it's, it starts with the letter C and it's a girl's name. So then the next storm was Dennis because it goes down the alphabet and it's a male name. And um, you know, Gerlock is open to the elements, um, but they have fast this lovely little nine-hole course um, with one of the holes runs right along the beach. You know, it's um, sort of next stop. Well, you have to look over some of the islands of the Hebrides and then the next stop after that is Ireland. And, uh, you know, just they're hardy folk up there. They're not too pampered. You know, the, the, the weather doesn't matter. You just get out and do what you're going to do. And the weather is incidental. So they breed them tough. I think down here where <laughs> I live in England, you know, we're all getting to be southern softies. <laughs> Maureen, I saw again on your website, and again, it's, it's uh, medillgolf.com, and you got a great picture of you working alongside Peter Alice, and what a huge thrill that has to be. What's your favorite Peter Alice story? Oh, gosh. Well, I've known Peter for a very long time because it's, it's, now, it's now something in the region of 23 years since I first worked for the BBC. But I started in radio, and 
didn't move to television until about 2004. And I had known Peter from when I played. Most of the great, he's a terrific dinner companion. And, um, you know, he's a bridge to another era, always has been. So he would have tremendous stories about playing with Arnie and Jack Nicholas from the early Ryder Cups because people forget that he was such a talented player himself. I think he played eight Ryder Cups. And um, he was naturally very talented. And he was at Roy Portrush last year for the Open Championship. He was commentating. And he was one of very, I can't remember how many, maybe two or three people who were at Portrush who had played in the 1951 Open there. The other one, I think he was one of two people. The other one was an Irish professional called Norman Drew. And these guys are both well into their 80s now. So Peter had a, had a lot of really, he was a young 20-year-old or something, I think, in 1951, and he came along with his brother and they played, and uh, Peter was doing quite well, and then he and his brother went out on the town and met a couple of local girls, and uh, Peter had a bit of a disaster around the next day and didn't make the cut. So <laughs> he says it was all down to the Irish girls, you know, he blames them, of course, <laughs> but he's very, he's very, very entertaining. Um, he's coming up. Shortly, at the end of this month, end of February, I think he celebrates his 89th birthday on the 28th. So, uh, you know, he's still as sharp-witted, as quick off the mark as as ever. You know, he's just got such wonderful observational humor. You know, he looks at something and he, he sees it in a different way. And he's got a great turn of phrase. And, um, you know, I've been... Oh, just so incredibly lucky to have had the opportunity to work so often with him. And um, I've cherished it, really. I mean, we've had a few... Uh, we agree to disagree about a number of um, things, um, and we have what we call spirited discussions. Never arguments, just spirited <laughs> discussions. Um, but, you know, it's all in good part. It really is. I feel so, so blessed to have had such a long time with him. It's been terrific. As you mentioned, referencing back to last year's Open Championship, have the local parties ended there in, in honor of uh, Shane Lowry's championship? Or do you think, are, are we going to have those local parties carry on until we get to Royal St. George's in mid-July? Oh, I think they'll probably carry on a lot longer than that, Chris. I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, I suppose when we all went there, you see, I, I made a determined effort not to work at the Open at Portrush because I've been a member there since I was a junior. I've been a member there for over 50 years. And I really did not want to be to work there because, you know, I just wanted to enjoy it without the responsibility of, you know, having to pay attention. I mean, you know what it's like. I was asked to do a number of things, one of them including just, okay, we understand you don't want to work, but could you come on at the end of the day just for 10 minutes in the studio? And I thought, well, you know, if I am going to do that and be reasonably sensible and make some sort of erudite comments, I'm going to have to pay attention. You know, you can't just be out there watching and doing your own thing. So I turned it all down, and I honestly would have to say it's the best decision I ever made. And I just walked, I walked at least 18 holes every day, and the crowds, the galleries were absolutely fantastic, um, as we knew they would be because they'd already been phenomenal there for the Irish Open a few years earlier. And, um, you know, I suppose in many ways we would all have thought that Rory was was our our best chance of a, a home winner. Um, and, of course, that got off to such a disastrous start for him, hooking it out of bounds off the first and opening with an eight. Um, but I watched quite a bit of Shane, and Shane just came in slightly under the radar. And once Rory's valiant effort to make the cut, you know, had not quite managed it, um, Friday was all about Rory and then the full beam of attention switched to Shane and he had that magnificent round on Saturday and then we knew we were in for an absolute hoolie of weather on Sunday and everybody, all the locals felt that that would benefit him and um, you know the weather was pretty atrocious and we all set off with him from the first tee and not a single person wavered or went in and umbrellas were being blown inside out, you know, and people, people were being blowing, blown over and were huddling behind grandstands. And it just the army just gathered up and gathered up and gathered up. One of the best uh, things I've ever experienced on a golf course was just being there 
on the and surging up the 18th fairway when he made it to the green. I mean, it was, I can't tell you how emotional it was. It really was tremendous because the Irish are always so proud of their own who, who do anything, you know, on a world stage. I mean, if we had the Tiddlywinks champion, we'd be having parties for a year. You know, any excuse for a party. But this was just <laughs> magnificent. And uh, oh, it, was just, it was a fairy tale. It was a fairy tale. And uh, I suppose for everybody except for Rory. Yeah. So what was it like being in the midst of the crowd? As you talk about being there as he comes up 18. And when that final putt goes in, what was it like being in the thick of it? Oh, it was amazing. I mean, this, you know, it's a long time since I've been on outside the ropes of the golf tournament. You hear the best commentary outside the rope, Chris. There is no doubt about that. I mean, the 18th was amazing, but by the time we got to 18, we were already celebrating because he was home and dry. But going up the first, on the first hole when Shane was starting, and remember you'd Brooke Kepka in the group ahead, and we positioned ourselves sort of three quarters of the way up the hole. It's a plateau green. And we were up the hill on the right-hand side, looking back down towards the tee. And the entire hole was lined. And um, it was really extraordinary because literally I'm, I'm standing 30 yards from the putting green at the first. And the world number one at that time, Kepka, is on the green putting. And I just looked around the green. Nobody was looking at the players on the green. All the binoculars were trained back down the fairway towards the tee. And Shane started off, if you recall, with a bit of a ropey sort of snipey thing down the left. So before, you know, he tees off, got all these Irish rounds and they go, right, come on, Shane, oh, come on, this is it now, four shots ahead, this is it now, just down the middle, down the middle. And they're full of optimism. So he hits this fairly indifferent tee shot and they're going, oh, for goodness sake, Shane, what, the, what are you, what are you doing? Oh, no, he'll be grand. He'll be grand. So of course, Shane walks down. So it'll be, now we're, they're getting ready for the second right. Come on now, Shane, on the green, on the green. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, if he, you're not, he's not going to get a good lie down there. This will be a miracle if he gets it on the green. So the, all the folk are, come on, come on, Shane, on the green, on the green. So he hits this thing and it, it's going to come up short in this cavernous bunker about, you know, 40 yards short of the green, that's about 20 feet below the level of the green. So the ball's in the air, in the air and, the gallery going, come on, come on, get up, get up. Oh, oh for God's sake. Oh, my giddy aunt. <laughs> it's in the bunker. It's in the bunker. And so it's that right now, Shane, right now, Shane. Now, he's 20 feet below the surface of the green. He's about 50 yards from the pin, which is up on a narrow ledge in the back here. And they're like, right, come on now, Shane, within 10 feet. I'm thinking, for a good, within 10 feet, I said, he'll be doing well. Get a five from here. Well, I didn't say it. And they, they commentated all the way through now. The further we progress up the hole, he only makes it in the middle of the green in three. So now we've gone in the space of 15 minutes from him being four shots ahead. They're full of optimism. Now they're going, for goodness sake, Shane, what are you, what are you mucking about at? This is hopeless. This is useless. Oh, well, he might hold the putt. Then he leaves the putt eight feet short. And they're having kittens. And I mean, honestly. <laughs> and so then the next thing, in goes the putt. Oh. Right, we're off now. We're off now. I mean, it was absolutely hilarious. You know, if you could have an unabridged version of that, although the languages get, which made it funnier, get quite choice. Um, it would be, it would make for terrific television. <laughs> it was absolutely, it was hilarious. Um, and you know, there were so many visitors that I met out in the gallery from all over the place. And the, the galleries were very good natured. So you can imagine the weather. There was an absolute array of umbrellas. So you'd get yourself set on a hill where you could see and then people would go a bit closer to the green and they'd, they'd have these umbrellas. So everybody would just say, they'd call out the name, like if there was a company name on the umbrella, they'd call out, Mr. Colgate, Mr. Colgate, down in front, umbrella down please, umbrella down please. And this, this poor fellow would look right, he'd be shamed into putting his umbrella down. Then it would be, Mr. Titleist, Mr. Coloured Titleist, please, <laughs> umbrella down. And the next, we get, get hundreds of umbrellas put down, you know. And I mean, it was just, it was great fun. And unless you were, you know, Tommy Fleetwood was close up there um, with Shane. But unless you were rooting for one of the other players, the neutral was very much for the Irishman. And so they were very, it was the most partisan, enthusiastic 
gallery that I've ever been privileged to be a part of. I mean, it was an experience I'll never forget. So did you get to join into some of the after party and toasting Shane's victory? Well, I no, not exactly, but I was um, meeting some friends. Yeah, it must have been something in the region of six o'clock in the evening when the final putt went in. And my husband and I were down in the gallery on the fairway about 50 yards short of the green. So I said to my husband, I said, well, like, let's go in. And we had tickets for, I can't remember the name, some sort of tent in the tented village. And that was our meeting place with all our pals. I said, I'm not going to wait for the presentation on the green. Let's go in and meet everybody in the tent. Because they had big screens in there. We'd been out in this weather for four and a half hours. I was sick of it. So I suppose it was maybe quarter past six by the time we made our way into the tent, met up with everybody, got a pint of Guinness. 20 to 7, they ran out of Guinness. Wow. They ran out of Guinness. Graham McDowell had organized a celebration party in the Players' Lounge. They ran out of beer as well. As would, that's a wow. bit of a black mark, Chris, isn't it? I have to say, unheard <laughs> of at an Irish party. But, um, and you know, I don't suppose that um, alcohol in the players' lounge runs out too often because the players don't imbibe an awful lot. Um, but it, apparently it, the beer ran out in the players' lounge as well. So, uh, but there were great parties on all over town. Oh, it was just terrific. It was terrific. The whole place was a buzz. I mean, it was the whole small town of Port Rush and all the businesses were all invested in it. It wasn't just something that was happening at the golf club. And, uh, yeah, it's be a hard act. Roy St. George's have a hard act to follow. They really do. This time of year, most of us, most of us golf fans, we're, we're starting to look ahead and do the countdown to the Masters. Obviously, that's Rory McIlroy's one piece of the career grand slam that he has still to fill. If he were uh-huh. to make it two in a row for the Irishman, talk about what that would be like. Well, any Irish win is, is terrific. You know, because we're only a small little pimple in a big world. And to, you know, Broderick Harrington started off this modern era in 2007 and we've just, we've just performed. I think we really, really punch above our weight. I'd be, any Irish win would be, any Irish major win is tremendous. Um, but honestly, I'd hardly be able to contain myself. I think if Rory managed to pull it off. And you know, it's it's just Rory is I, you know, I watch him here from home on the telly. He's he's just I don't know if you've met him, Chris. He's just such a likable guy. I've known him since he was seventeen, and he's never really altered. He he's a stubborn person. He does things his own way. He sometimes says things that he thinks better of later on. But he's thoughtful, not afraid to read things. He's not afraid to study things, to see if, you know, to, to have another point of view put to, so he can decide if he's going to change his opinion. Um, he's, I remember saying to his dad, Jerry, once that, um, I had seen Rory with, um, I think it was, it was the way he handled something after a disappointment. This was a number of years ago. And I said he was so, I just said, oh, he was so gracious to whoever it was. And his dad just looked at me and said, well, his mother would kill him if he wasn't. And I just thought, <laughs> well, that's it. You know, he was just, he's just been brought up well. It's a difficult tightrope to walk, isn't it? To be number one in the world and have a certain confidence, stroke arrogance, stroke cockiness that does spill over into you coming across as being entitled. It's you know that's a very difficult thing to pull off, and I think he pulls it off probably better than anybody because he still loves his Ulster rugby. He still follows all the things he's interested in. He's still got the same friends that he had at school, you know, and um, you know he 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 just he did. I don't know if you've seen. He did this wonderful, wonderful um, interview with the Irish Independent. Paul Kimmage, which has recently come out in a three-parter. And Rory doesn't say to him, uh, you mustn't ask me about this, or don't, there's nothing that is off limits. 
mean, Rory's grown up with all of these Irish press. He's got a relationship with them all. Um, and, you know, to he, he trusts them. They're not going to twist anything that he says. You know, they're going to report and he's, He's very confident in his handling, but he, he was the same when he was a youngster. And he's very, he's very giving to the press. He, and that was make, that's what makes him so popular. And, uh, I mean, it's just amazing. He, he spoke very frankly to, um, Paul Kimmage about, you know, what, what happened to him at Portrush and how nervous he was on the first tee. He had completely underestimated the effect the whole thing was going to have on him. And he said he was walking over the, there was a one of these overhead walkways from the players' lounge area across the top of the practice putting green and down onto the amphitheatre of the first tee. And he said that when he started walking over there, he thought, oh, he's got a big lump in his throat. I mean, you, you can't underestimate what it meant for all of us back there to have the open back after all those decades. And he walked down onto the first tee and he said his hands were shaking. And he it was unexpected and he was taken aback. And he had been up for a practice round the week before and he felt comfortable with the course. Um, but he got up there and suddenly, you know, one poor shot and he's out of bounds. Now he's hitting another one. Doesn't get a great lie. Fifteen minutes later, you're plus four. I mean, extraordinary. Um, so he had, he was very, very frank about that, about how he wasn't, he wasn't anywhere near ready for that. But then he was completely choked up by the support that he got on the second day when he had that valiant, almost, was he going to get over the line before you know, was he going to manage to sneak in and make the cut? And he ultimately he failed by a shot. But he, I, do, I can't ever remember that there being so much interest in when, if a player was going to make a cut. And they were roaring him on. And he said he didn't, he, he hadn't forgotten what, how much home meant to him. But he was completely blown away by what he meant to the people at home. And that's what really, I think, was his undoing. Now, Rory is a thoughtful guy, and um, he'll come back from that. Well, he's already back from it better. I mean, his, his golf has been phenomenal. So, I mean, this is a bit of a ramble on from your question about the Masters, but, um, oh, I think uh, that would be, um, that would make me extremely happy if Rory could manage to uh, get measured up for a green jacket. Yeah, to, so to that end, you mentioned he's back to number one in the world. He's, he's playing well again this weekend. He's only, you know, three strokes back going into uh, today's round. Is this the year? Is this the best that we've seen, Rory, since he had the lead going into the fourth round uh, all those years ago? I think this is the best golf that he has played um, over a stretch. There's no doubt about that. I mean, he a few years ago he became much more interested in his statistics and so on, and he wanted to make marginal gains and try and improve a little bit in in each department. And you know he he's done that, and I I would say Brad Fax has been a big part of that, you know, because his putting has improved so hugely. Now Augusta's a scary place, isn't it, around the greens? But in many ways, I think you when you are so such a ball, supreme ball striker uh, as Rory is. You just have to be a good putter at Augusta. You don't have to be great. If you don't hit it quite so far or you're not a supreme ball striker, you have to be a superb putter at Augusta. Um, who knows, Chris, because how, I don't can't begin to fathom out how you deal with such a long lead-in from the end of the Open Championship in July, round now to this April to Augusta and the Masters. And once again, whether Rory is playing his best golf or his worst golf, spotlight will always be on him to see if he can become the sixth player to complete the Grand Slam. 
you know, it's not very many people over over the history of golf, is it? And uh, you know how, how he deal. I mean, I don't know. He he's been searching for the best way and how he's going to manage this. And he's had quite a, a spell there where he decided he'd try and um, treat the majors just like any other week. I, for one, hope that he's going to go away from that because I don't think that's quite worked. Um, every player will have their own recipe and everybody's recipe for success is undoubtedly going to be a little bit different. But just as an interested observer, as long as Rory has been treating majors just like any other week, it hasn't sat particularly well with him. So um, it's all very interesting, isn't it? But very easy to sit in the sidelines and just enjoy go along for the ride and enjoy it. You're not the one going through it. And, uh, you know, he's, he's trying to solve a jigsaw puzzle here. And I hope he finds that. If there is a missing piece, I hope he finds it for this April. <laughs> Indeed. One of the things that, that you sort of alluded to a moment ago, and I, I wonder if he's going to be able to corral it. You talk about the emotion uh, on the first tee at, you know, at the Open Championship last year. If he found himself in the lead, on Sunday at, at the Masters on the in the back, which we all know, right? The, the Masters starts on Sunday on the back nine. If he got that far in the lead, do you think he could hold it together emotionally enough without getting ahead of himself? Oh, I think he could. Yes, I think he could. I don't think he'll ever experience anything quite as um, unbalancing again as Portrush ever. I don't think there is anything that could knock him off his stride quite like that did. Um, Absolutely. I think, look, um, if Rory's around the lead in the back nine at Augusta, whether he wins or whether he doesn't win will just depend on his golf game and his mental strength at that point. Nobody can win every tournament. He has won majors. He's held off the best before. He can do it. He knows he can do it. Um, so he certainly, it's he won't fail because he, because of, you know, when he lost four shot lead at Augusta, he was inexperienced then. You know, he won't, he won't make mistakes. Somebody else might play better. Somebody else might just absolutely go and shoot 32 in the back nine and win by a shot. Um, that's always possible, particularly with where they put the pins on a Sunday, you know. 16 and whatever, you can knock it in close. You can get a momentum going there. So, there are so many great players, and there are so many that can step up. But, um, I don't think he'll get in his own way, really, if he's in that position again on the back nine at Augusta. I really don't. Maureen, I want to uh, switch gears uh, for a moment. And um, This past week, we lost one of the all-time greats of the game, and that's Mickey Wright. Um, did. she had a great swing, a great player, um, wanted to get your thoughts on Mickey Wright, her influence on the whole game of golf and certainly on women's golf. Well, I think it was probably quite sad that there are an awful lot of golfers who've never heard of Mickey Wright, particularly over on this side of the Atlantic. Um, I mean, even those you know, I, I've looked at, at some of the old pictures of her swing and so on and so forth. And I, I read what she said in the 80s that she couldn't understand these modern players uh, in, in the way that they swung. But you look at her swing and it still all stacks up today, doesn't it? It's just such a wonderful, fluid action. I mean, you have to sit up and pay attention when you get the like of Ben Hogan, Sam Sneed saying, that, you know, they've never seen a better swing man or woman. Um, I think it's, I think we were, I think women's golf owes almost everything to her. Um, because she single-handedly really, um, was the linchpin that got the LPGA going. She played in all the tournaments because the sponsors in the early days wanted Mickey Wright to play. And I think she was the president or whatever the title was of the LPGA. And um, she was doing her best to get more sponsors on board and so on and so forth. But they all wanted her to play. So she had this dual role on the course and off the course. And she played in everything. And, you know, that 
really over a three, four years, five years spell was the bedrock and the foundation of what has become the LPGA today and the successful tour that that is. And I think she just exhausted herself and that's why we lost the game at a relatively young age, early 30s. So uh, it's incalculable the debt that we owe her. And, um, you know, I read this lovely article last week about how she kept a, a, a map the practice mat on her back porch. She kept the club there in five balls and well into her 80s, almost on a daily basis, she would just, you know, think, oh, I'll just go and have a hit. She'd hit her six iron out onto the fairway of the adjacent course and then toddle off and pick up the golf balls. Probably still reassuring herself that she could still do it. But um, yeah, I, w- I never met her um, and I would have loved to have seen her play. And uh, she, aren't we, we are so lucky to have had such a pioneer, ably supported by many, many others, I have to say at this point. But you always need the one person that sort of at the sharp end, at the pointy end, the one person who, you know, grabs the sponsor's attention and, you know, just really is the one who manages to make it all happen. And Mickey Wright was that for women's golf. Maureen, you've got a lot of great teaching instruction on your website, some wonderful videos. I was watching one where you talk about a young lady, and, and so many of us do this with our swing, where we are trying to scoop at the ball and we're we're falling backwards. We got a, a really bad uh, reverse D finish and, and uh, we're, we're cupping our right, our lead wrist for right-handed players, our right wrist trying to help the ball up in the air. I wanted to get a couple of playing lessons from you. How can we do a better job and get away from that and hit the ball more crisply and cleanly and believe that our irons actually have loft and it'll get the ball in the air? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Chris, because um, I think a lot of our faults come down to what we um, we believe in our heart. So we have these core beliefs. And who knows where they come from? It might be misunderstanding a commentator on television, or it might be have been a loose phrase. Um, you know, you could hear a commentator say at a certain point, oh, he got under that so well. And you see, just the use of those words to somebody who doesn't play a lot of golf or is just starting, they think, mm, okay, so it lodges there somewhere in the recesses of the brain. And then you come along and there's this golf ball and it's very easy for a golfer to think that they have to get under it. And you can't get under a golf ball, really, because the golf ball sits on the ground. So how can you come at the ball from underneath? You can't, because the ground's in the way. So you have to understand that the game is a sideways-on game. We stand at the side of the ball. And if you just imagine that you had a tennis racket there and you would you come along as if you were hitting a forehand, you hit from the side. And your golf clubs, believe it or not, the golf clubs, your set of golf clubs, they're on your team. They're actually trying to help you. Now, they are a funny shape, but if you imagine that on the end of the shaft of your club, instead of a a, a funny-shaped head, you had a table tennis bat or a tennis racket, and all you were trying to do was knock the ball forward, you would come in with the face of that racket or bat square. You wouldn't be trying to come from underneath. You would just come along square. And the minute you understand that you hit the ball from the side rather than from underneath, it changes your entire posture. Because as you said, if you have a core belief or something in you that thinks you or you, the player, are responsible for getting the ball up, you will try and scoop. And if you just think what that does to, if you're right-handed to your right hand, the shape that that goes into, that's completely different from if you just come along to hit from the side. And so when you understand that that is hitting from the side is how the club must look, and you've got to trust that this funny shape is going to get the ball in the air. It's not your job. Your job is to deliver this face from the side. It's the club's job to get it in the air. So it's a bit of a division of labor. And when you try to take over from the golf club, you're going to get a result that you don't like. So 
So it's just really trying to get an understanding of a thought that is actually helpful for you. And there's so many transferable skills from from other sports. If you have ever hit a tennis ball, you know, a forehand over a tennis net, you know, just to hit it normally over the net, you can play golf if you're hitting it hit it from the side. So you can use images and imagination like that, and I think it helps. But, you know, golf instruction, Chris, as you know, it's so difficult to convey simply because there's always a myriad of um, innuendo and double meanings. And when you're not with the pupil in person, you know, if something is written down in the simplest language, somebody will read that and they will take another meaning out of it. And similarly, I try to make the videos like really, really being very straightforward. I don't go into too much detail because I don't think the average golfer needs to know how to do something. They just need to know what to do. So what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to hit the ball from the side with the blade square. And if that's too difficult an image, substitute a tennis racket in your picture imagination instead of the golf club. That's what you have to do. Now just go away and and experiment. And you will get very close to a very good action. I don't need to tell you, uh, now I bend your wrist here and have your uh, your right arm in this shape and do that in the other. You know, I'm telling you what to do with the tool. And I and because of your other skills and all sorts of other things, you will be able to go and do it better than if I start breaking it down and saying, now your weight's over here and your right wrist like this, but that, you'll be ready for the funny farm after all of that. you've got another bit of instruction about uh, those of us that are struggling with our putting and uh, getting the right feel and judging distance i think it's it's something that uh, can be conveyed pretty easily across radio Um, talk about how we can set up and uh, and hit our putts a little more crisply and get it online and make more putts using the sort of toe-to-toe distance that was something a professional on tour told me years ago I thought it was quite a good thing. Um, I was having difficulty judging the pace of the green. And uh, this pro suggested to me, look, when you go on a green, you know, if you say roughly you've got a, a short, medium and long putt, they suggested to me that I vary the width of my stance. So pretty narrow for a short putt medium distance width for a medium sized putt and long a wider for a long putt. And you put your stance the distance that you thought your stroke ought to be. So when you had a very small putt and a narrow stance, you'd roughly swing your putter back to your I'm a right hander, so back to my right toe through to my left. And then obviously a slightly longer swing. So you're basically giving yourself a little bit of a visual guide to how far back the putter... I mean, this is something for when you really don't have any pace. And you can start... I find it works really, really well. You know, obviously, you go from a very, very fast green, you go from a very, very narrow stance. But the thing is that when you then go to such a short stroke, you can still hit your putt with a bit of intent. I think where many of us, myself included, go wrong is that on some of the shorter putts on fast greens, because, you know, you, we take maybe too long a backswing and then you're into all sorts of territory where you, you're decelerating, et cetera, et cetera, and you're not even striking the putt well, and then you do strike one well and it's six feet past. So, you know, a little bit of a visual aid as in where your feet position is very helpful. So it's just a, a very loose little one that a loose guide that might be helpful if you're just on a day where you do you, you know you feel your touch isn't quite there sometimes it helps knock you back on you get a couple close or a couple in and then away you go you get your confidence back and you know then maybe you can revert back to your normal size stance maureen just a couple more before i let you go and we've finally seen the usga and the rna come out and say enough enough is enough with distance you know, they're looking at ways to kind of rein it all back in. Where do you stand on the distance issue? And are you for bifurcation between, you know, we amateurs I, and the pros? Yes. 
Absolutely. I've been for bifurcation for years and I'm scared to say it because it's treated like a dirty word. Um, and you know, but in my opinion, we've had bifurcation for ages anyway. I mean, you and I cannot go out and buy the golf clubs that the guys are playing on tour. Can we? We can't go to no. and buy them. We can't. No matter what they say, we can't. So they, they have access to equipment and, uh, et cetera, et cetera, that the, the common or garden golfer cannot go and get. I, I don't have a problem. I would, I would leave the amateurs alone. You know, they are still, you know, most of us are still, you know, we like a bit of distance. Um, and it's quite nice for the amateur to hit it further. They just hit it further into the rough, but they're a bit closer to the green. That's fine. They're playing for leisure. Give them a bit of pleasure. Don't take that away from them. But I would, I would limit it for tournament golf and I would limit it. I would have. Now, way back in the day, I remember I grew up playing a golf ball that was 1.62 inches. And we knew there was a change coming where we would have to play a 1.68 inch golf ball in elite amateur tournaments. But the ordinary club golfer didn't. So, I mean, we have been through this before. I don't know why everybody's... I mean, we had times where you guys all played a 1.68 inch ball and we all played a different size ball. That's and right. We, we, we elite amateurs at that stage, we had to, we knew it was coming. And if we wanted to play professional golf was going to 1.68. And so we changed. And it was a long time before ordinary golf club members changed. So I don't know why everybody gets so het up about it. You know, let, I would leave the amateurs alone. I would definitely rein in the ball for the pros, absolutely. Um, and I I understand about the commercial aspect, but you know what? If you had certain properties of a golf ball, you can still have Titleist and Callaway and TaylorMade and all those people making a brand of a tournament ball. It would have parameters, and maybe the club so that the ball doesn't come off the face too fast. And then you don't have to have this ridiculous situation of the old course at St Andrews where you build tees outside the boundaries of the golf course to make it play with the hazards that you're supposed to play with. You know, um, economically nowadays, you know, all the looking after huge golf courses, I mean, these guys hit it so far. You re- you need 8,000-yard golf courses. Well, how long is that going to take them to play? You know, there are right. fabulous courses around this world. And, you know, uh, they've fudged the issue for so long. But I don't know why. I mean, they, I don't know why they're so against bifurcation. I really don't. And the, 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 one of the arguments always is, well, you know what? You can't, you can't really go and play rugby at Twickenham and, or you can't go and play Wimbledon on the uh, centre court at Wimbledon but you can go and play you know on the old course yeah you can but you certainly can't go back and play off the tees that the men play from in the open you know you're not they're always saying oh you can play you can go and play the same places you're not playing the same course I think well I mean there would be so many things I don't know about it Chris there would be so many you know commercial aspects and restrictive trade and all this, that and the other. But I think we've got to, um, I think the RNA will be, when's the Open next at St. Andrews? Must be. Next year. Is it next year? Is it 21? Yeah. 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 21. I think they're going to be very worried that that golf course could be just absolutely, if they get calm weather there and you have to have the greens, you know, you can't have greens as fast as you have them traditionally in your country. Um, when it's a link like that, you know, if you get a few calm days there, you're going to get people breaking 60. They don't want that. Why would they? You know, it's such a fabulous test of golf. If the hazards are in the right place, it'll make it more interesting again. It'll make the players have to craft their shots. They don't, I'm not blaming the players. 
But the examination paper that's been set up to them over the past decade is just hit it as far as you blooming well can and go and get a wedge on it and get lots of spin even out of the rough. So their games have developed like that because that's how the courses have been presented to them. If they had to play five irons and, you know, the, the greens were firmer and you had to flight it into the fly, right to left or left to right, craft the shot, they would, those skills would come to the fore again. You know, they're the best in the world at what they do. You become good at the examination paper that you normally are facing. And at the moment, that, as I say, hit it as far as you can. And they don't care if they're in the rough. They'd rather be in the rough 130 yards from the green and on the fairway 180 yards back. There's it's a the bomb and gouge to, game now, right? Yeah, there's a middle ground to be found in there somewhere. And I, it's about, you know, they really need to, the authorities really need to sit up and take notice. And of course, the length of the courses all goes hand in hand with how long it takes to get round. For our listeners that want to stay up to date with all you're doing, talk about what your schedule is. When is the next time we get to hear you on uh, on the uh, PGA channel on Sirius XM and what's the, the rest of the year look like for you? Well, I'm, I'm almost a lady of leisure. I'm sort of semi-retired now, Chris. So I, I'm very, very lucky. I come over and I do the majors and I do the Ryder Cup and things of that nature. So I will be over in the States next for Augusta on Westwood One. And then I will be over again for the PGA, the US Open and the Ryder Cup for Sirius XM. And so it's lovely because I had a lot of years in the middle in television and I started in radio and radio is a lot more fun. And I have to say, I work with a couple of great, great crews over there in the States. And it's just, it's great fun. And I get to walk along inside the ropes uh, with the best players in the world, honestly. What's not to like? <laughs> right. So how can our listeners uh, remind them about your website and the things that you have on there, plus how they can follow you on social media as well? Well, the blog that my sister and I do is medillgolf.com M-A-D-I-L-L medillgolf.com and we post uh, Patricia my sister um, was a golf writer and wrote for the Times in London for over 20 years and her late husband was the golf correspondent for The Guardian and between them they covered over 100 majors and she suggested some years ago that we do a blog, and I have to say I wasn't very interested because I'd never, I had done lots of things in golf, but I had never written very much. And it's what I would call it's a soft blog. We're we're not, you know, breaking the news or whatever. We have world, we have friends around the world that this game has introduced us to, and we thought it would be a nice way of keeping in touch with them. And we thought we might be lucky if we got a dozen people to look at it. And we've been doing it now for very nearly four years. And the original thing was we would do it up until Port Rush, and then we would stop. But we have stopped. And um, aside from a bit of a break over Christmas each year, we post every Friday. And sometimes I put a few tips on. And we just we just do observations about any and everything. And, uh, you know, I say to her sometimes, oh, I don't know what to write about. And she says, well, write about whatever you want. And I said, it's not very interesting. She says, it's our blog. We can write what we like. <laughs> so <laughs> she and I, I've enjoyed it a lot more than I thought. I really have. And we get some lovely feedback from people, which is which is really terrific. It's, it's great fun. It's just an, uh, uh, it's a, it's almost an indulgence for ourselves. And um, so, and I put out on Facebook and, uh, Twitter at MoGolf99 um, now and again just um, you know publicizing what we've done on the blog or putting a link on that kind of thing it's very gentle well it's a delight and I've enjoyed reading it and staying up to, up to date with what you're doing on Twitter and it's at MoGolf M-O-Golf99 on Twitter is her handle Maureen it's always a huge thrill 
to get to spend some time with you. You're an absolute delight. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your Saturday afternoon to be a part of the show. You're wonderful. Oh, well, it's a pleasure, Chris. And uh, are you going to be at any of these majors this year? Am I going to get to meet you in person? I hope so. I will be at Augusta, that's for sure. Um, I don't know. I won't be right, there well, certainly we'll for all the whole week. But... We'll have to get a cup of coffee together at Augusta. I will look forward to that. I, uh, uh, it's a huge thrill, Maureen. You're, you're, like I say, you're an absolute delight and I would be honored to meet you and, and, uh, I hope you'll come back and join me again soon because it's always a lot of fun. That would be lovely, Chris. Thank you very much indeed. Take care, Maureen. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. All right, Chris. You take care. Bye. You too. That's the great Maureen Medill. Medill Golf. M-A-D-I-L-L. MedillGolf.com is where you can find her online. At MoGolf99 on Twitter. Give her a follow. Like I say, she's a lot of fun and very informative every time she comes on the show about her insights. And then we get a couple of playing lessons as well. What a fantastic lady and a great talent. I look forward to catching up with her next time, hopefully getting to spend a little more time uh, talking about this year's majors. And wow, what a thrill that would be to have a cup of coffee and sit down with Maureen Medill live. All right, folks, thanks for tuning into this special segment of Next on the Tee. Until next time, hit them straight, my friends.